Here we are, friends. A warm greeting to each one of you joining us on the one-year Bible reading tour. Today is November 19th. My name is David McAdam, and I'm happy to serve as your co-reader and tour guide. Each day we read the designated Old and New Testament portions from the one-year Bible reading plan. And by God's grace, we are making progress in our final section of the Old Testament, the section called The Prophets, where we are reading from the prophet Ezekiel. And we are now in the general epistles in the New Testament, where we are reading from the epistle of James. Ezekiel has been given strong words from the Lord regarding Gog and Magog, and today he will start the final section of his prophecies that deal with Israel's hope, which includes the fulfillment of its call to be the people of God, worshiping and reigning in the kingdom of God. We acknowledge that there are a variety of interpretations here, but one thing we have learned on our tour is that every prophecy is to be taken seriously, and we can be assured that it will come to pass. So let's begin by reading from Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward, and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog, and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years, so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forest, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them, in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land, so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months they will make their search. And when these travel through the land, and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it, till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. Hamona 
is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk, at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me, when they dwell securely in their land, with none to make them afraid when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations any more, and I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel." declares the Lord God. Chapter 40 Vision of the New Temple In the twenty-fifth year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God he brought me to the land of Israel, and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. Then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep, and the side rooms, one reed long, and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, 
and the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and its jams, two cubits. And the vestibule of the gate was at the inner end. And there were three side rooms on either side of the east gate. The three were of the same size, and the jams on either side were of the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gateway, thirteen cubits. There was a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side, and the side rooms were six cubits on either side. Then he measured the gate from the ceiling of the one side room to the ceiling of the other, a breadth of twenty-five cubits. The openings faced each other. He measured also the vestibule, sixty cubits, and around the vestibule of the gateway was the court. From the front of the gate at the entrance to the front of the inner vestibule of the gate was fifty cubits, and the gateway had windows all around, narrowing inwards toward the side rooms and toward their jams. And likewise the vestibule had windows all around inside, and on the jams were palm trees. The Outer Court Then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement, and the pavement ran along the sides of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the distance from the inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, a hundred cubits on the east side and on the north side. The North Gate As for the gate that faced toward the north, belonging to the outer court, he measured its length and its breadth. Its side rooms, three on either side, and its jams and its vestibule, was of the same size as those of the first gate. Its length was fifty cubits, and its breadth twenty-five cubits. And its windows, its vestibule, and its palm trees were of the same size as those of the gate that faced toward the east. And by seven steps people would go up to it, and find its vestibule before them. And opposite the gate on the north, as on the east, was a gate to the inner court, and he measured from gate to gate a hundred cubits. The south gate. And he led me toward the south, and behold, there was a gate on the south, and he measured its jams and its vestibule. They had the same size as the others. Both it and its vestibule had windows all around, like the windows of the others. Its length was fifty cubits, and its breadth twenty-five cubits and there were seven steps leading up to it, and its vestibule was before them, and it had palm trees on its jams, one on either side. And there was a gate on the south of the inner court, and he measured from gate to gate toward the south a hundred cubits. And this concludes our reading from the Old Testament passage from the book of Ezekiel. First let's go back and review chapter 39. The overruling hand of God is seen as the Lord takes action in bringing judgment upon Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Eighty-five percent of his army will be destroyed. The defeat will be so catastrophic that the bodies of the slain soldiers would become food for the birds of prey and wild animals. 
verses 4 through 9 are similar to Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, and are obviously referencing the same event. Revelation chapter 19 is at least a partial fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4. The battlefield is an open field near Mount Tabor, where the valley of Jezreel is located. This large valley, also known as the plain of Esdraelon and the valley of Megiddo, could serve as a suitable battlefield. This valley was identified by the Apostle John as the battleground for Armageddon in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. The name of the Lord will be vindicated by this judgment on Gog and the deliverance of Israel. All will know that He is the Holy One in Israel. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 7. The burning of the weaponry will supply fuel for Israel for seven years, in chapter 39 verses 9 and 10. The huge valley will be required as a burial ground for the multitudes that are slain in the battle. It will take seven months to bury the dead. After reading of Gog's defeat, we are taken back to Ezekiel's words to the exiles. Ezekiel listed seven purposes of God that would be accomplished by his ending the exile. Number one, God would initiate a new era in his relationship with Israel, as indicated by the word now, in verse 25. Number two, God in love had disciplined his people, chastening them with the temporary defeat and captivity, and would now show compassion by restoring them to their land. Number three, God would be zealous for his name's sake, reversing the profaning of his name and promoting the sanctification of his name among the nations. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 20 through 23. Number four, Israel would forget their time of shame and unfaithfulness, and their time of disgrace would be past. In chapter 36, verses 30 through 31. Number five, God would demonstrate his holiness through the regathering of his people from the countries of their enemies and restoring them to their land. Number six, Israel would know that Yahweh is their God as he leaves no man behind, bringing all back to the land. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 28. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations, and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. Number seven, God would pour out his Spirit on the house of Israel as he has promised. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, and Joel chapter 2, verse 29, a promise associated with the messianic age. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel 39, verse 29. Lamar Eugene Cooper writes in the New American Standard Commentary, quote, Yet those who think that Pentecost is the final fulfillment of this prophecy and that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God must reckon with the stress of these chapters on the need for an eschatological vindication of God's name in his dealings with Israel. These prophecies call for Israel's literal return to the land in peace and prosperity, 
followed by the threat of massive invasion and a spectacular annihilation of Israel's enemies. Only then will the revelation of the uniqueness and glory of God be complete, and will the purpose of Israel as a light to the nations be fulfilled. Ezekiel chapter 40 begins the final section of prophecies concerning the realization of Israel's hope. The people of God are restored spiritually, morally, and physically. They are portrayed as worshiping the one true God in this restored place of worship. These prophecies were given twelve years after the previous ones and are the last, with the exception of chapter 29's prophecy concerning the overcoming of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar, which was given a later date. Chapter 40, verses 1 through chapter 42, verse 20, contains the vision of the restored temple. When I was in Israel, a Jewish woman explained the built-to-scale model of Ezekiel's temple that was on display in Jerusalem. She described this temple as the belly of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem as the belly of Israel, and Israel as the belly of the world. Some translations refer to it as the center of the world or the navel of the world. Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 12. Jesus stood up at the great day of the feast and prophesied, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, that is, his belly, in the King James Version, will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But are we to suddenly switch our entire interpretation of this prophecy to one that is non-literal, where up to now all prophecies in this book have been taken literally, even though apocalyptic language has been used? I don't think so. Is this just Ezekiel's dream of an ideal? Nothing in the post-exilic history of Israel has ever matched these predictions, and the rebuilt temple has never equaled the dimensions described. There are a variety of interpretations, but Ezekiel is told to record these details carefully, which gives us good reason to believe that they are to be taken seriously. The One-Year Bible Companion summarizes the four dominant views on this passage. Quote, the building of the temple envisioned a time of complete restoration to the exiles, a time when God would return to his people. A temple was built in Jerusalem in 520 to 515 B.C., in Ezra chapters 5 and 6, but fell short of Ezekiel's plan, in Haggai chapter 2 verse 3 and Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10. This vision of the temple has been interpreted in four main ways. Number one, this is the temple Zerubbabel should have built in 520 to 515 BC and is the actual blueprint Ezekiel intended. But due to disobedience, in Ezekiel chapter 43 verses 2 through 10, it was never followed. Interpretation number two is that this is a literal temple to be rebuilt during the millennial reign of Christ. Interpretation number three, this temple is symbolic of the true worship of God by the Christian church right now. Interpretation number four, this temple is symbolic of the future and eternal reign of God when his presence and blessing fill the earth. Whether the temple is literal or symbolic, it seems clear that this is a vision of God's final perfect kingdom. The argument against the view that Ezekiel's temple is a literal building of the future is that sacrifices are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 38 through 43. If the sacrifices were to be reinstituted in the last days, then Christ's final sacrifice would not have been final. 
The New Testament makes it clear that Christ died once and for all in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 10, and verse 18. Our sins have been removed. No further sacrifice is needed. In Ezekiel's day, however, the only kind of worship the people knew was the kind that revolved around the sacrifices and ceremonies described in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Ezekiel had to explain the new order of worship in terms the people would understand. The next nine chapters tell how the temple is the focal point of everything, showing that the ideal relationship with God is when all life centers on Him. Ezekiel explained God's dwelling place in words and images the people could understand. God wanted them to see the great splendor He had planned for those who lived faithfully. This kind of temple was never built, but it was a vision intended to typify God's perfect plan for His people. The centrality of worship, the presence of the Lord, the blessings flowing from it, and the orderliness of worship and worship duties. End quote. I would caution that there are weaknesses in spiritualizing these passages. Such interpretations fail to give an account for the people, places, and events, as well as the great detail that the angel of God told Ezekiel to be careful to take note of. We will explore some of these details in further readings. Now let's move on to our reading from the New Testament. In the book of James, chapter 2, we begin with verse 18, and we will read through to chapter 3, verse 18. The Epistle of James, chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Chapter 3. Taming the Tongue Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire! And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Wisdom from above. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this concludes our New Testament reading from the epistle of James. James contrasts the pseudo-Christian with the real Christian. The pseudo-Christian has a profession of faith. A true believer has the possession of faith. Faith is more than an intellectual assent to the reality of who God is and what He has done. James declares even the demons believe that and shudder. No, a living faith is empowered by the Spirit to bring about a transfer of trust to the perfections of Christ, who produces in us the desire to render to God obedient action. Living faith will be manifested by the fruit of faith, deeds, in James chapter 2, verses 18-26. through 26. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. This gift of salvation brings the life of God into the soul of man and will energize the production of spiritual fruit. Living faith will enable believers to produce works that God has before ordained that they should walk in. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. James warns against those who desire to teach but are not themselves subject to the word. In James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He warns those who presume to be spiritual yet have need to submit their tongues to the control of the Holy Spirit. In James chapter 3, verses 3 through 12. Some can pretend to be wise, and yet their wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Those who are truly wise, James says, are those who have been made right with God through faith in Christ and have the fruit of righteousness being reproduced in their hearts. There is no possibility of peace apart from righteousness. Here, when James says that the wisdom from above is first pure, it is pure righteousness. Then it is peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peace does not produce righteousness. Righteousness produces peace and peacemakers. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Now let's move on to the book of Psalms, and we are reading Psalms 118, verses 1 through 18 today. 
His steadfast love endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Psalm 118 is the last in the series of songs known as the Hallel. These songs of praise and thanksgiving were sung on the holidays, and this psalm was sung by Jesus and the disciples after the Last Supper, before He moved out to the Mount of Olives. It calls forth praise for one reason, His love, chesed, mercy, loving-kindness, covenant love. His love endures forever. This is the song of the redeemed. God has set us free in verse 5. Whom should we fear in verse 6? We have His presence, His help, His company, His victory in verse 7. Imagine the Lord Jesus singing this psalm on the night that He was betrayed. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. He was going to the cross to cut off all the power of the enemy. In verses 10 through 12. His trust was in the Father, His help, His strength, His song, and His salvation, the one who would raise Him from the dead. We who are beneficiaries of His redemptive work can sing from our tents. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. Psalm 118 verses 15 through 17. Here is a psalm that holds on to the promise of resurrection life. And now for our final stop in our excursion today, let's go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 2. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. A law-breaking people of the land look to lawless leaders. They lead society to ruin, but only one man is needed, a man of understanding and knowledge, to cause a land to endure. This is a reminder of the power of one, and should encourage us all to our individual responsibility to promote the godly welfare of our nation. 
but it also is a reminder that Christ Jesus, the God-man, is the indispensable ingredient for our eternal well-being. Now let's pray together. Gracious Triune God, thank you for giving us the true meta-narrative of human history. You are the Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer. We see that history's goal is to bring all things under the headship of Christ, that you will be all and in all. We pray that today you would advance your purposes, that your kingdom will come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We praise you that one day your name will be hallowed among all the nations. Your kingdom rule has been inaugurated in our hearts by the new birth. We pray that we will joyfully submit to your word and your spirit and enter into your choice purposes for our lives this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, friends, for joining us on this leg of our journey, and God willing, we'll be with you tomorrow as we continue in the book of Ezekiel and the book of James. If you have any questions or comments, you can always write to us at podcast at newlife.org, and you can also receive a written copy of our commentary on each day's portion by subscribing to a daily email at our website, newlife.org. May I encourage you to seize the day Lay hold of the eternal life that you have been given in Christ Jesus and be blessed. Shalom.